This message is brought to you by Living Faith Church. You can find us on the web at livingbyfaith.com. Grace is when I get what I don't deserve. Mercy is when I don't get what I do deserve. If I get out of God's will, I deserve whatever comes my way, and it's not a blessing from Him. Because if I'm not walking in God's covenantal covering, I'm outside of that. God's mercy is extended to me. Now, mercy... You have no guarantee under the new covenant that mercy is going to be there tomorrow. Don't come with your hymnology that says new every morning, your mercies. And, you know, that's great. That's true. But there's no guarantee. Whereas if I'm operating in grace, grace is always abundantly flowing to me. Grace is where I'm in the will of God. Grace is where I don't deserve everything that He's pouring and lavishing upon me. But man, I enjoy it. I don't ask him why. <laughs> Amen. Just keep hitting me again, Jesus. You know? But gray, uh, mercy is the opposite of that. I get out of God's will, and I operate in that realm, and I'm expecting God to come up trumps every time for me. Now, His love is extended to me, and I operate in mercy. The majority of Christians operate in the realm of mercy. And thank God for His mercy, because without it, we'd be destroyed. Amen. Amen. But don't push it too far. You don't want to push that envelope, all right? When you realize, man, I'm out of step with God, get back uh, in under grace. Grace is God's willingness to use His ability on our behalf all the time. If you come along to the training center, you'll learn that. See? God's riches at Christ's expense, but that's too superficial. All right, we started something there, didn't we? Have a look at Galatians chapter 5. We're talking about building character. And you see, you can, you can, you can have God even working in your life and not have any character. You can have an anointing on your life and not have character. Character is who you are. Not who you are only in Christ, but it's the result of the continual working and the washing of the Word in your life. It brings you to a place where you start realizing that truly in Christ Jesus, you are a brand new creation. One version says a species that has never been seen before. See, the spirit realm look at us and they say, wow, angels, the book of Peter tells us, they, 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 they stand on tiptoe to look into some of what we experience. They can never experience it because Jesus never died for angels. Made in the image and the likeness of God. And I'll guarantee you that there are times when they stand there and they scratch their heads. And they say, why aren't they taking advantage of who they are? <laughs> See? So God wants us to change. And He ministers to us. And uh, if you've looked in the mirror lately, you'll find that I'm not just talking about physically. I'm talking about reflectively in on yourself. You'll find um, you're not such a hot rod. Amen. You haven't got it as together as you thought you did. Amen. But God wants you to put it together. And God wants to enable you to do that and has already made provision. So if we will hear what he says to us, don't worry about your neighbor. This is a Tuesday night is a real selfish time in the Lord. Right. You know, you get focused in on what God's saying to you. He will speak to your neighbor, but in all probability won't say to your neighbor what he's going to be saying to you because the two of you are different. And so God is speaking to us. And we're told here in Galatians chapter 5 that there are certain things that He wants to do in us. 
If you have a look there, starting at um, verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not. Say, will not. See, if I walk in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, this makes it very clear that there are two realms in which I can operate. I can operate in the Spirit, because the Word of God says so. By the Holy Spirit, Paul writes to the church and he says, walk in the Spirit. He doesn't say try to. He doesn't say do your best to. He doesn't say learn to. He says do it. Now, the only time that I can walk in the Spirit is when the real me, that is, my desires, my longings, and everything are subjugated to the will of God, and they, I don't let them resurrect. Yes, that's right. See, as soon as that sucker starts coming up off that altar, smack him down. Okay? And sometimes it's hard. But if I'm walking in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the lust of the flesh is not the thing that this body wants to do, because this body is just the vehicle that the real you is operating in. And so flesh, in terms of biblical definition, is not muscle and bone and sinew and and tendon and so on. It is my will exercised contrary to God's will. So when I know the will of God, and I operate contrary to that, I'm walking in the flesh, and I'm exercising my will against God, and God will let you. How many of you ever backslid? Now, no, don't get embarrassed. Now, just let me raise, raise your hand. Some of you are not raising your hand. You liars. <laughs> See, uh, you made a decision to do that. The devil never pushed you into that. You made the decision to backslide. And the backsliding wasn't, I'm going to go out there and commit that intentional sin. The backsliding was, I just don't want to do what God wants me to do now. And then uh, what happened was, you looked around, and God had moved on. And you're still being nice, and you're still quoting your scripture, and you got your confession going, and God ain't there. His, God is a God of progress. He never stops. It says He never slumbers nor sleeps. God's always moving, and God wants to move in your life and mine. And you and I need to understand, I've just painted a picture. Don't write me theological doctrine and all the rest of it, all right? Just leave that, okay? Just grab the spirit of what is being said. So, walk in the spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He goes on in verse 19, and he starts giving you a long list of the things that are classified the lusts of the flesh. But then he gets down to verse 22, and he says, the fruit of the human spirit, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And so we're learning that there is a place for us to walk. There is a, a manner in which we can walk. There is an enabling that has already been provided for us. The fruit of the recreated human spirit, it's not the Holy Spirit's fruit. Fruit means that there's something that is produced from time to time. That's not fruit. God is love. God doesn't have the fruit of love. You and I demonstrate the fruit of love. Jesus did a beautiful teaching in John chapter 15 when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. You never will find fruit on the vine. You'll find fruit on the branches. It's the branch that produces fruit. 
The life of the vine flows through the branches, and as the branches allow the pruning process to go ahead, that life that flows into them causes a manifestation of the right kind of root to come out on the branch. You recognize the fruit, uh, the, 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 the tree by the fruit that it produces. See? And you're a branch. Turn to your neighbor and say, hello, branch. <laughs> okay? Well, you see, the reason I say that is because you've got to realize my next statement is going to be the branches where the fruit's being produced. And your next question should be, how much fruit is being produced? See? So the fruit of the recreated human spirit is love. Now, the byproducts of that love are joy, peace, gentleness, and we've covered all of these. I trust that these things are being a blessing to you. I trust that you're learning and you're starting to apply them in your life. Because you see, God wants His people to have character. We want anointing and God wants us to have character. God is more interested in what you and I are becoming than what we are doing. You can't help God out. God waits until we are prepared and then uses us. And He will use us at a certain level and He waits for us to keep getting prepared for the next process. And when you're ready, He takes you and uses you. But if you don't get ready, all you do is stand there and mark time. So if you're not progressing in your Christian experience, check it out and see why. So this evening I want us to have a look at this uh, eighth byproduct, or the seventh, the seventh byproduct of the fruit of love, meekness. Meekness. Going to have a look at meekness. This word meekness has been misunderstood. Jesus was meek. And this is usually thought to mean that he had the ability to suffer abuse without resorting to any form of retaliation. And we think that that is meekness. In actual fact, meekness has three parts to it if we were to define it. And it means a whole lot more than non-retaliatory. A person who is meek is, number one, self-controlled or slow to give or take offense. Self-controlled, slow to give offense and slow to receive offense. Number two, a person who is truly meek is humble in spirit and lowly in mind. But hang on, brother, we're supposed to be a faith church. What about who I am in Christ? I'm going to show you who you are in Christ. And I want you to realize that being humble in spirit and lowly in mind does not drop you from the lofty position of being a joint heir with Jesus and ruling and reigning with Him. It does not. In actual fact, it enhances that status. And then the third part to the definition of being meek is this. Teachable. Teachable. In Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, the Greek uh, dictionary of the New Testament, on page 60, you'll find it. Because people have said to me, where do you find that? 
Well, that's where you find it. So get the tape and you'll find out where it is. But all three of these combined together go to make up the byproduct of the fruit called meekness. All three of them have got to be in place. Now, meekness describes man's attitude to God. Not essentially, but consequently, his attitude to man will be influenced by that. This is something which is vertical, not horizontal. It's vertical, and the impact horizontally with your brother and your sister is going to be the result of that vertical relationship being what it needs to be. But don't think because a person walks around in gray clothing, uh, is a nondescript kind of individual, um, is, is, is backward in coming forward, and so on and so on, that this person is meek. You got it all wrong. Meekness is not spineless wavering, but it is a force causing us to stand and do the will of God in the face of every foe. Now I'm laying a foundation and we're going to get into what exactly meekness is. Meekness is not like Reuben, who was quoted as being unstable as water. Rather, he was like Joseph, his bow abode in strength. So, the first function of the fruit of meekness is this. It's to enable believers to develop self-control. Meekness has already been put into your life. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 says that the love of God, agapea, agape love, has already been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's the love of God. That is the same love that is talked about in verse 22 of Galatians chapter 5. Now, the fruit of the recreated human spirit is agape, agapea. It's God's love. And that is already on the inside of both you and me. Every one of these byproducts, you and I can produce because the seeds are already on the inside. The potential to produce the fruit is already there. And if you're not a meek person, you can become one through learning how to develop this fruit. Same thing with love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, and so on. Faithfulness. So we've got it on the inside of us. God wants us to bring this forth. Holy Spirit. And this should be our prayer uh, after sessions like this for the next week. That's how you should be praying. Last week we were dealing with faithfulness. I think we did that for three weeks. You see? But faithfulness. Every prayer, every morning when you get a father, teach me more about faithfulness. Take that tape and run through it. See what, see what it's saying. God will start things moving in your life. In that direction you become more and more faithful. See? Same thing with meekness. Lord, thank you that the potential for meekness is on the inside of me. Meekness is not weakness. Don't confuse the two. Meekness is tremendous strength. You're going to see this in a minute. But that's the way that you start bringing forth that fruit. Let it develop by faith. Thank you, Father, it's on the inside of me. Thank you, Father, I'm learning under the Spirit's guidance to be meek. So the first function of the fruit of meekness is to enable believers to develop self-control, to be slow to give or take offense. I want to read 1 Peter, 1 Peter, and you don't have to turn there. You can make a note of, uh, of the address if you want to. 1 Peter chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 19 
and 20. And it says this, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. The key word there is wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, that is acceptable to God. In other words, when you get out there and you make a mess, and the person in charge comes along and says, what have you done? Look at the mess you made. And you get corrected and you get uh, instructed and, and perhaps even rebuked for taking a course of action which was unwise. If that happens to you, don't turn around and say, well, I'm suffering for Jesus. <laughs> you're not. You're suffering because you're stupid or you weren't listening. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. And this happens in the workplace. And this happens in the church. You see? So if you get reprimanded for doing wrong, don't turn around and say, oh, well, you know, I'm, uh, just because I'm a Christian. That's not the case. Because it goes on and tells us there what is acceptable to the Lord. If when these kind of things take place and you've done the right thing and then you get chewed out and you take it patiently, that is acceptable with the Lord. We're talking character. See? Meekness is displayed when you've done the right thing and you get chewed out and you handle the chewing out without resentment. Nudge your neighbor and say, take a breath, you're turning blue. <laughs> Meekness possesses self-control not to react negatively, even when being accused, slandered, afflicted, or persecuted. But I'm getting pushed around. No, you're not, because your warfare is in the spirit realm. It's not in the natural realm. Strength to exercise self-control while suffering injustice comes from cultivating the fruit of meekness. Now, you all know the story, and we touched on it a little bit last week. In Numbers uh, chapter 12, the first 13 verses, you've got the story of, of Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister who got real mad, and they got mad over something that they had no right to get mad about. He went out, and he took an Ethiopian woman for his wife, and they got mad. And in actual fact, what they ultimately ran to was a place where they were questioning his fitness to fulfill his role as the spiritual leader of Israel. But now we need to learn from the meekness Watch this word of Moses. Because verse 3 of chapter 12 of Numbers tells us, in parenthesis, just to help us understand what's going on, it tells us that Moses was the meekest of all the men living in the earth at that time. So now he's got his brother and he's got his sister, and they're saying, do you think that you're the only one who hears from God, huh? Ah, after all, I'm high priest. After all, I'm your older sister. I'm the one who put you in the bull. I, I changed your diaper. <laughs> Hell, come on. Okay? And, uh, and God gets mad. 
Now, there are a couple of things you don't want to do in this life. One of them is get God mad. That's bad news. And God calls all three of them into the sanctuary. And the interesting thing about it is God goes along and God proceeds to tear a strip off Aaron and Miriam. God has got a way of doing that. He leans on you so hard, but so gently, that you get crushed. But you don't die. You wish you were. See? So he goes along and he deals with them this way. And it's interesting that for the full 13 verses, the whole thing is taking place in front of Moses. Not once until the end of God's dealing with them does Moses open his mouth. And you go and read that story and you'll find the only thing that Moses had to say was to attempt to intervene on behalf of his accusers. He didn't walk around and say, God, did you see what they said? God, did you, did you know? And this is supposed to be your high priest. Never touched on it. All he did was he went in and he heard everything and knew what God had said to them. And he tries to intervene on their behalf, even though they accused him. We're talking meekness. Now, there are characteristic signs of meekness, and one of them is that. It never takes retribution. And the interesting thing about it is, Every one of the byproducts of the fruit of love that we've been covering, when they are in you, in abundance, you will be a mature Christian. You will be. How many of you realize we've got a bit of growing to do? Just in one or two areas. You see, it was this meekness in Moses that enabled him to remain silent while the Lord was rebuking Aaron and Miriam in front of him. How would you and I act in that situation? This is what we do. Father, I love you. Okay, now you're standing in Moses' shoes. Vengeance is yours, Lord. You said so. There's some of us, Lord, who've got a stiff neck and we won't learn. And there are times, Lord, when you have to release that vengeance. This is a good time. <laughs> Come on. Did you see what they did to me, Lord? No. Moses said nothing until God had dealt with the issue. And then he cries to God, not concerning his hurts to be healed, not for God to justify him and defend him against the attack that's come against him, but for God to show mercy towards his accusers. Now, the second function of meekness is this. To enable believers to be humble in spirit and lowly in mind. W.E. Vine defines meekness this way. It's the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It is not occupied with self at all. Now, that can be extended into every area of your life, including ministry. There is a boldness for God. There is a place where you have to have such overflowing confidence in God's faithfulness and His ability to work when He said He will work, that you step out 
but you are realizing very clearly that if God doesn't arrive on the scene, you're dead meat. God better show up. Now, the opposite to that is, is, is a false humility. It says, I'm nothing. God would never choose to use me. No. You've got to understand that there is a confidence that is needed in order for His children to do exploits. But that must never be self-centered. It must never be done with a view to promoting self or drawing attention to self. Never. Because self is, doesn't even come into it. You just happen to be the vehicle that God chose to use. But uh, yeah, you, I'm a king. Yeah, you are. And you'll rule and reign in Christ Jesus, provided you stay in Him. And if you're in Him, nobody can see you. All they see is Jesus. Now, go with me to Philippians. Back a few pages, would you? Because I want you to see a couple of things here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. There is that phrase. Lowliness of mind. Let each esteem the other better than themselves. Look not on every man his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And that's not talking about writing exams in the training center. It means there needs to come a caring in the body, which obviously is absent at the time that this is being written. And remember that these are written to us, not for us. And I think the Holy Spirit in His all-knowingness recognizes that today there is this need still present in the body for us to have a look at the things of other people. How concerned are you with the things of other people. I remember back in the 60s, and uh, uh, where, where's Arthur? I saw Arthur here tonight. Arthur, does your company do little patches? I've got a patch I want them to make for me. Okay? Now, there's a patch that a, that a guy wore. Remember those? You, some of you don't. This is before your time, some of you. Some of you do. Okay? You remember flower power, peace? All right? This guy walked around with a patch that caught my attention. I never forgot it. And it basically just said, give a damn. The majority of us don't give a damn. We don't care about anybody but ourselves. We don't care about their hurts. We don't care about their concerns. We don't care about whether they're actually needing to have fellowship or not. Give a damn. We are so self-centered. We are so concerned about our comfort zone, and ensuring that we have what we want. And as a fruit of meekness is developed in his life, the believer will develop an attitude that the welfare of others is more important than his own welfare. This is what meekness will produce. That's what those verses in Philippians were addressing. Once this has taken place, the believer will find a tremendous barrier has broken down in his spiritual life. And this is the barrier. Let's assume that you have symptoms on your body, symptoms of sickness, disease, whatever. 
or you're going through a personal battle, do you know that this is the barrier that will be broken down? The believer will find himself praying for other people who he's aware of is going through the same thing more than he's praying for himself. But until that barrier goes down, I pray for myself. And maybe I'll mention, maybe I'll mention the others if I've got time. And only meekness can equip you with the lowliness of mind necessary to put the welfare of others ahead of yourself. Have a look at Exodus chapter... I got a lot of lessons out of Moses. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Again, we're dealing here with Moses. If you look at the life of Moses, you will find Moses literally gave himself for the children of Israel. He literally gave himself. He stood against God for the children of Israel. There was a time when God was going to cut him off and God said, Moses, your people... I mean, God's just owned them now. He's not saying my people. He says your people. Your kids are running rampant and right down there. I'll tell you what, I'm not going to deal with them anymore. I'm going to blot them out and I'll start over again with you. And Moses says to him, if you do that, I'm going to tell everybody that you broke your word. And Moses won. Now look, don't you try that with God. Okay? You don't have the call on your life that Moses had yet. Alright? Okay? Now Exodus chapter 32, starting to read at verse 30. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. Note, he, he wasn't identifying with their sin, but he was going to intercede on their behalf. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which you've written. Moses stands there on behalf of these people and he esteemed the others, the whole of Israel, more highly than himself. Self-sacrifice is the ultimate manifestation of meekness. Self-sacrifice. It doesn't matter what it costs me as long as you're okay. Now, today in the Christian church, we still have great difficulty laying down our lives for others. Many times we miss the blessing of Luke 6.38 because we take Luke 6.38, give and it will be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will men give into your bosom. We take that and we apply that almost entirely and almost exclusively to offerings. But that's not the only area that God requires us to give. Now let me, make, let me make a principle very clear here. What you sow is what you reap. 
And you can't substitute one thing for another. There is a place for giving financially in order to reap financially. But if you're not giving in love and you're not giving in friendship, don't come to me and say, I don't have anybody who loves me. I don't have any friends because my first question to you is going to be, to whom have you extended love? And to whom have you shown friendship? Because if I want to harvest a friendship, I better start sowing some friendship. I start. Well, they owe me because they're supposed to be Christians. They owe you nothing. They owe you no- They don't even know you. You come in here horrible, messed up, and everything else, and that's what churches are for. But you've got to get them, uh, give them the opportunity to get to grips with you. Some people who come in the first time are so prickly, you can't get within 10 yards of them. We had a couple of ladies the other Sunday morning, a couple of Sundays back. We hit the first bars of the first song. My Lord, I thought the rapture had taken off. I thought, they, they hit that door running. Well, that's all right. This wasn't for them. That's okay. But a lot of people come in and they're here because they've been invited and they sit there all prickly. And you're prickly because you don't want to be here or you're prickly because the Holy Spirit started dealing with you or something. Now you get mad with me. And I go, no, I don't even know you. And to know me is to love me. You love the divine 29. We'll tell you about it when they get back. But you don't know me. But we need to realize something that there is a need for us to learn to lay down our lives. Do you remember, we're talking here about Moses. Do you remember what happened to Moses? In, in chapter 20 of the book of Numbers, the people are thirsty. They're in the wilderness. And they're crying to Moses. And they say, we need water. And he goes before God on the behalf of the people. And the Lord says to him, Go to that rock and speak to the rock, and water's going to come out. But between his leaving the presence of God, literally, and getting to the rock, the pressure of what he was dealing with with the people got to him. The frustration, the continual hassling of the people, and he got mad. He got in the flesh. And instead of speaking to the rock, he said, you want water? Here it is. And he smacked the rock. Well, water came out. But that act cost him the promised land. He was only going to see the promised land from Mount Pisgah's lofty heights. He would never put his foot on it. The desire of his heart, and I guarantee you it was birthed in the backside of the desert there where God said to him, I want you to go to Pharaoh because I've chosen you to take the people out. You're going to bring them out of captivity into a land that I will give them. And I'll guarantee you that burning brightly in his mind was this entering this promised land. He stood with the people. He stood on behalf of the people when they were ornery and difficult and against God and wanted to go back to the leeks and the garlics. When they complained about everything, he intervened and he stood on their side against God. And kept reminding God, these were His people, these were His people, these were His people. And in Numbers chapter 20, the, the frustration that he experienced causes him to sin. And he loses that one prize 
It was the whole thing was the motivation of his life, was taking them into the promised land. And in 21, Numbers 21, what happens? Children of Israel are sinning in the wilderness. And God causes, they're, they're moaning and griping, and God causes fiery serpents to go amongst them. And they come when numbers of them have been killed by the serpents. And now they come to the person who's supposed to be their spiritual leader. It's, his inheritance has been lost by them. And they come to him to intercede before the Lord on their behalf. I wonder how we would have handled that. You cost me everything. Now you want me to pray for you, huh? I'll pray. <laughs> Come on, help me out. I'll pray. God, kill him. See if I care. I'm not going to get in the promised land in any case. You said so. Huh? No, not Moses. Moses goes along and we find he intercedes on their behalf. Verse 7 tells us, Moses prayed for the people. That is a response that is made possible by meekness. Doesn't seek its own. Seeks the well-being of others. Now let's bring that into a, into a New Testament context. Here's a ministry. You know, in the body of Christ, we all have a ministry. And we have some ministries that are general ministries. Galatians chapter 6. We have such a general ministry given to us. Galatians chapter 6. <clears throat> if we would just be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is teaching us, we would not need to look around and uh, try and find a ministry. If you feel that you don't have a ministry, I'll tell you where you can start. Get involved with the intercessory prayer. Yeah. Oh, I'm not called. You just told me you, did, you wanted a ministry. Yeah. What you're saying is you don't want to pray. What kind of ministry do you want? You want a platform ministry? Ain't coming soon. There's <laughs> a growth process. God may well give you one. But you need to understand something. There is need for growth in the Christian experience. And that person sitting next to you is the best person to help you grow. They're going to take off some rough edges. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are... What's the next word? That doesn't mean that you're able to quote the Word of God. It doesn't mean you've got a memorized portion of the Word of God or portions. It doesn't mean that you've been 10 years in the church. It means that you know how to live the Christian experience the way that Jesus lived it. He's our example. You're able to take the Word of God and handle situations. You've got your emotions under control. The majority of Christians live their Christian experience out of the emotional realm. They make emotional decisions, not spiritual decisions. I feel like Jesus. I tithe, I don't tithe. I'll give, I won't give. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. What is God saying to you? 
And I'll tell you right now, if you're not getting blessed, I touched on this. This is something which is so alive on the inside of me. Soon we're going to get the whole lot just poured out. But it's so alive on the inside of me. If you are not tithing, don't expect God to bless you. I promise you. I, I believe it. And I'm not, I know we've got guests from other churches. You need to be tithing in your church. If that's your storehouse, if that's where you're getting fed spiritually, you must be tithing there. Because that place is doing a good job. Just look at you. And if you're not getting fed there, you'd better check out whether God wants you there. Amen? Some people are pouring money into places that are dead. They're mausoleums. Amen? They're dead. Full of stinking dead bones. No, 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 no. Don't, do, don't keep that thing alive. Kill a sucker. Yeah. Let it die. But I'm serious. But there are others where they need support. And if God's placed you in a place, feed on it. Now, I'm saying that to you because, you see, if you are not tithing, you can't be giving to the Lord. Oh, but I do. I give. I don't tithe. I give. No, no. You can't. Will a man rob God? And the aspect of tithing is vitally important because that is an indication that you recognize that is God's and I don't touch it. Now, when I've given God His, I can expect God to do certain things on my behalf. But if I'm using what belongs to God, I'm robbing Him. He said so. And if I'm robbing Him, do you think He's going to bless anything else that you put your hand to? Not at all. God's not going to bless that which is at fault with Him. It is so, this is so alive. I'll tell you this, Northern Virginia will be saved. It's going to be saved by a people who recognize I am nothing. But everything that I possess, any talent, any ability, any possessions that I've got, they're yours, Lord. What do you want me to do with them? And God can call on them at any time. Hide and see. It's coming. There's plenty of money here in Northern Virginia. But we want to walk on, you know, the wealth of the wicked's laid up for the just. Yeah, it is. Dummy, go and get them born again. Then it bring, comes into the kingdom. But if you're waiting for them to die and somehow their treasure is going to land in your pocket, not, not. Get them born again. But what about the body of Christ starting to believe God for prosperity amongst themselves? I, I'll tell you this, that we, we had look, and the numbers are down over the vacation time. I'm rejoicing. Bill's, Bill's not looking, he's looking at me like I'm mad. But I'm saying thank you, Jesus. And I'll tell you why. Because it means people can afford to go on vacation. So they're getting prosperous. They've got the money to do it. Oh, but they're running away with our money. They're not our source. God's our source. Amen? Oh, well, let's move off that. Let's move off that. Now, have a look there. If a man be overtaken with a fault, you who are spiritual... What must I do? Restore such a one with a spirit of meekness. Meekness. A spirit. You who are spiritual. It doesn't say you are spiritual. Pick up the phone and get a prayer meeting going. <laughs> Under the guise of getting prayer done. Prayer meeting slash bracket. Gossip group. You're a liar. I've seen through that a long time back. Well, I just wanted to share with them because I had such a burden. You lie. You lie. 
You put that phone down, you ugly thing. Holy Spirit's all over you like stink on a skunk. Yeah? You want to gossip. That's what you want to do. If the Lord reveals something to you concerning somebody else, it's not for you to share with anybody else. You go and pray. And you say, God, what would you have me to do? And God, if I, you've given me an area of responsibility. Now, God, I'm going to give you the right that if I step out of line with your will concerning this responsibility, kill me. <laughs> you be very careful what you do with it. Oh, yeah. But you see, we take God for granted. See, uh, that's where we operate in the mercy of God. We talked about that earlier. <laughs> I just wanted to share because she's got such perception, such insight. Ah, oh, hogwash. If she's got all of that, why would God have shown it to you? He showed it to you because he wanted you to do something about it, and he wanted you, through that process, to do the right thing. And that might mean getting on your face for the next six hours and praying that through until a release came. And you might never even pick up the phone and speak to the person concerned. You might never mention it in this earth. Because there's nowhere it says you've got to go along and tell her. It says you to get her restored. And spiritual restoration takes place in the spirit realm. And there is a place for you and for me to get under the person and undergird them and stand in the gap on their behalf. If you see them overtaken with a fault, you go in. Devil, that's my brother. Devil, that's my sister. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You are trying to bring them low. There's no way you're going to steal my brother or my sister from this body. I come in against you in the name of Jesus. I break your power. I declare that you are defeated. I'm not going to let... In the meantime, you saying, Holy Spirit, you go along and you minister to them. Thank you for your word that is alive on the inside of them. Show them, Lord, what the devil's trying to do. Show them. Speak to them. And you might never ever speak to them on this earth concerning that matter. That's what that verse is talking about. Restoration isn't, well, I better go along and go and speak to this person and see if I can straighten it out. You don't have, any, you don't have enough brains to straighten it out. Now, if the Lord tells you to go, literally tells you to go, I don't do that. And I'm your pastor. Go on, check out the people that have been here for years. I don't come to you concerning those things. I'll pray them. But unless God tells me, go and speak to them, I don't speak to you about it. And there's a whole lot that I know that's going on. You don't know that I know that's going on. <laughs> but it's okay. You don't have to know what I know. Huh. But I'm praying for you. Do you understand what I've just said? See, that's the way that you handle this. And our function is to restore them. How do we restore them? Spiritually. You take the heat. You see what, the, you know, the spectator sees more of the game than the players. So the spectator is watching what's going on here. Man, and the Spirit of the Lord gives you insight. I see what's going to happen here. And you get hold of that armor and you get in the face of the devil. And you take on the devil for your, he's already defeated. He has somehow deceived your brother or your sister. The eyes of their understanding have been darkened. They're blindsided by him. They think they're doing right, and you know that they're not doing right. You get inside there, and you take him on. You take the heat. You can handle it. That's why God showed you. And you release the Holy Spirit to minister into their lives so that the Word of God will come alive through ministry. And it's not your ministry to them. Don't think it is. The majority of times it's not. It's just that you can take the pressure off them and the Holy Spirit now can deal with them and show them the error of their ways. Do you understand? 
So you and I have got that kind of ministry. And the interesting thing about that word restore in in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, it means to mend, it means to furnish completely. And it's the aorist tense, it's the present continuous. We never stop doing this. We keep restoring and restoring and restoring and restoring. You're giving of yourself. It's not you that you're restoring, you are restoring others. It's talking about meekness. Making sure that the needs of others are met before myself. Because that's not important. Oh, but brother, you don't know the pressure I'm under. If you've given that care to Jesus, he'll handle it. Now that frees you up to go along and do these things. But what we do is we give the care to Jesus, walk five yards, and then we go back and we grab it. I don't know what we're going to do here. You've just been spending 40 minutes talking to him about it. Is this all right? I believe the reason for many breaches in the body of Christ today is because believers are not willing to lay down their lives and allow the spirit of meekness to manifest through them so that they can keep going and keep restoring one another. We're too self-centered. We don't give a damn. Now the third function of meekness is this. It's to enable believers to be teachable. Go to James chapter 1 verse 21. James chapter 1 and verse 21. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive, receive with meekness. That means a teachable heart. The engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about give you sanity. Bring sense to what's happening in your life. Get your brains unscrambled. Expose yourself to the Word. Let God minister. Let the engrafting of the Word into your life bring sanity. Give you direction. Give you purpose. Every time... A Christian backslides. I'm not talking about miss it once. I'm talking about backslide, get cold. The first thing I do is uh, check with them. How's your quiet time? It's non-existent. There's no word getting in there. That's why you're backslidden. I wonder what it would be like if we did a survey. Honestly, no names, but a survey of all the partners and said, how much time do you spend a day praying? How much time do you spend in the Word? See? What we do is we make this such an onerous responsibility. I've got to sit down for 40 minutes and read this and I don't feel like it. That mightn't be the time to do it then. Learn how to get your life adjusted. See? (laughs) All right, now. (laughs) The greatest obstacle to having a teachable spirit is the traditions of men. The greatest obstacle to having a teachable spirit is the traditions of men. Listen to Mark chapter 7, verse 9. I picked up on this one. I know you you know verse 13 because I've quoted it before. But look at verse 9, or listen to it. Jesus said unto them, Full well you reject the command, you reject the commandments of God that you may keep 
your own traditions. You'd rather hang on to your traditions than the truth that I'm bringing, says Jesus. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. Tradition will nullify the word of God if that tradition is not of God. And if it's of God, it'll change. <laughs> because God is always progressive. You know all revelation is progressive? I mean, you do not have a full handle on the revelation that you've got. Whether it's a revelation concerning healing, deliverance, salvation. All revelation is progressive. You should know more three months from now than you know today if you're spending time in the Word. I don't mean intellectual knowledge. I'm talking about spiritual insight. You should know more. You should have more revelation through meditating and allowing the Spirit of God to minister into your life. You should have more understanding. Here's a definition of tradition. It's the handing down of statements, beliefs, legends, customs, etc. from generation to generation, especially by word of mouth. And I want to say this tonight, that charismatics are as guilty of this as other people are. You know, we talk about the traditional churches. Well, I want to tell you, a lot of charismatic churches are traditional. We've got our own jargon, we've got our own way of doing things, and many times the Holy Spirit might have started doing that, but we've hung on to that. You know, it's like the children of Israel back in the desert. Back in the desert when they had the fiery serpent exercise, they went along, made a serpent of bronze, put it up on a pole, and anybody who looked lived. Well, that was wonderful. They moved into the promised land, they went through good kings and then bad kings, and the kingdom got divided, and up Coming to, uh, coming to the throne comes a king who decides he's going to serve God and he starts getting into everything and pulls the whole place apart. And he comes up with that stick with a serpent on it. They kept it and they were using it to worship. Because it happened 700 and something years before. This is what God used. It's bronze. There's no anointing on it. It was for that moment in time. But nobody is bright enough to pick up on it. So now we have a ceremony and a march and we carry this blooming serpent around the place and everybody says, oh, have a look. That was our tradition. And it's got nothing. It's sterile. Charismatics have got the same kind of sterile traditions. You know that false teaching many times is not error from the Word of God. False teaching many times uh, is, is human thought that's been developed and it was nice and it comforted some people at a certain time. But God was not, in all probability, even in that. But they've clung to it and they hang on to it. And an unwillingness to check my beliefs against new revelations will lead me into tradition. All revelation is progressive. Even the revelation on healing. You don't know everything about Jesus that there is to know. The revelation of His victory over the enemy. Go and meditate and you'll get more revelation. You'll get more insight. You can't get enough. Not in this world. But if I hang on to the things that were near and dear to me and my family. I remember when I got kicked out of the brethren. 
They sat at a meeting and all the elders there. And I remember I was having this go with him and they said to me, this one brother said to me, God bless him because he's a godly man. He says, Barry, I want you to know something. So we, we, were, we were discussing, amongst other things, hats. Hats. Women had to wear hats in that church, you see. And that's okay. If that's what they want to believe, that's fine. You can wear a hat. Wear whatever you want. You know, be sensitive. No 14 pomegranates and all the rest. But now, but he said to me, he said, I want you to know, if it was good enough for my mother, it's good enough for me. Not me. Because what my mother experienced, my mother experienced, it was okay for her day and her time. But God is progressive. And we're here in the here and N-O-W. And I want what God's got for us here. I, traditions are fine as long as they don't prevent me from getting more revelation. They don't prevent me from being what God wants me to be. They don't prevent me from moving on with God in what God is bringing into the earth today. If they do, cut them off. Now, you and I have got to learn. There were things that got us to this place in our Christian experiences. Here's a saying that we use in golf. You get down before a round of golf and you, 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 you have a few swings and, and, and you hit a few practice balls. and You might normally hit a draw, a right to left. But you make on that particular day, for whatever reason, you find that the ball's moving the other way. We've got a saying. You've got to dance with what brung you. Don't try and change your game. You're going to mess it up. Now, you and I are here in our Christian experience at this date and this time with what brung us. But I want you to know something. A wonderful thing about the Christian life, we don't have to keep dancing with it. Because God is going to give you fresh revelation and God has got a purpose and a plan that hasn't yet been revealed to you and He wants to take you into that. Don't let tradition keep you from that experience. Now the need to keep progressing and adjusting to new revelation of truth. And remember, truth was always there. It's just the revelation that you've gained is of paramount importance if we're going to move on with God. Three more minutes. Many get a truth and they attempt to make the truth out of a truth. And the full counsel of God is needed if you, got to re- if you want to remain free. In all your counseling, you listen you teachers, listen you counselors, in all your sharing of the word, maintain balance. And balance isn't a little bit of unbelief and a little bit of faith. That's not balance. Balance is what the Word of God says. The minute that you take a truth and you attempt to make it the truth, you're moving into error. God is not out of balance. Now, it's only to those, and Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 5. He said, The meek shall inherit the earth. Those who are teachable will inherit the earth. Those who are teachable will inherit the earth. I believe that you and I have got the potential within us to bear the kind of fruit that we've been talking about. We produce the fruit of meekness. We produce self-control. We manifest being slow to give or take offense. We have to be humble in spirit and consider others more important than ourselves. We have got to have teachable hearts. And in learning to walk this way, I believe that we will inherit the earth. I don't, I don't think it's a piece of ground. I think it's all things. I think it's all things. 
I believe that this is the way that we take over. How many of you would agree that the church is not dominant in the earth right now? How many of you will get in agreement with me that the church is going to be dominant in the earth? How is that going to happen? Not through your natural talent and ability, but by us being conformed to the image of Jesus. See, when the people come against you and you haven't done wrong, you'll be able to handle it with this spirit of meekness manifesting. And your attitude will remain right. That's how you draw people into the kingdom, through our lifestyle. They're not interested in what you're saying. They're interested in what you are. They're watching you. They want to see your power and your ability to handle situations. Not just to break the power of the devil over their lives. And that's how I believe we take over. You impress and you uh, cause people to be drawn to Jesus by your life. And your life isn't, oh, well, I'm so... It's meekness, it's love, it's joy, it's peace. You're going through the same circumstances that they are, but the quality of life that you're experiencing is far superior to what they ever can know outside of Jesus. And they are drawn to that. That's how we take over. You take over person by person. You don't work where you work by chance. You don't live where you live by chance. God has orchestrated all of that so that we can start letting this fruit manifest out of our lives and impact the lives of other people. Amen? Amen. Take the hand of the person next to you. Father, you've spoken to us tonight. Teach us in the days that lie ahead how we are to appropriate these things, how we are to apply them in our lives. That's your desire for us. Thank you, Father, for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for revelation of truth. Thank you for the way that you're leading us and directing us. Thank you for the changes that you're bringing in our thinking. Our minds are being renewed by your word. And our lives are being transformed by your word washing through us. Thank you for this person whose hand we're holding. Thank you for the fruit of meekness that is manifest in their lives in the days that lie ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.